Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hi, and welcome back to Belonging, the podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here to share with you a conversation with a former guest who's back for even more delicious, juicy conversations. So that is Laura Valeda Vesta, who I had a conversation with a few years ago now for episode 20 called Rites of Passage with Laura Valeda Vesta, where I remember being really struck with our conversation around the power of naming yourself. And we dove deeper into the three phases of rites of passage and uh, Lara's experience with illness and loss. And we're continuing the threads of that conversation really in the name of nonlinear reciprocity, this concept of while we were talking then and we'll continue the conversation now we want to talk more. We want to talk more about the runes. We wanted to talk more about illness and what it's like to be a spiritual being with a disability. We talk about spiritual sovereignty. It's a really special conversation. So if you haven't heard of her, Lara Valeda Vesta is an artist, author, storyteller, and educator transforming chronic illness into a path of healing and reclaiming. She is the author of the Moon Divas Guidebook and the Moon Divas Oracle, illustrator of the Moon Divas Oracle Cards, and the brand new book, Wild Soul Runes, Reawakening the Ancestral Feminine. It's an incredible book, and she her artwork is throughout it, including on the cover, one of her most famous images of the three Norns. So her research interests include ancestral connection and disability as initiation. She shares her journey with myth-telling, folk magic, ancestor lore, and ritual practice with her Patreon community, of which I am a member, and through her classes at the Wild Soul School. So pull up a chair. 
pour yourself a cup of tea, and join us for a continuation of this conversation where we dive deeper into ancestral connection and ritual and spiritual sovereignty and the runes with Lara Valeda Vesta. Okay, so you are my first repeat guest on famously on uh, the Belonging Podcast. So, Laura Valeta Vesta, welcome oh, back thank you. Thank to you Belonging. So much. Yes, so I consider you a dear friend and <laughs> wise elder. Before I hit record, you were giving me just like beautiful transmissions on the power of motherhood and getting through the harder times and. It just felt like such a salve to my tender postpartum heart. And and I'm also a patron of yours on mm-hmm. your beautiful Patreon offerings. And we're, you're here because you wrote a book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is the year we both release our books, oh, which I know I is a long-held that. dream for both of us. Although you have a book before this, Moon, Moon Divas, right? Yes. Yeah, I have two books, but they were both self-published. So this is my first non-self-published book, which is a huge. (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah, that is huge. So Wild Soul Runes, Reawakening the Ancestral Feminine. Uh, And what is so cool about this book is you detailed the process to your Patreons. I remember Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. sharing so much about the entire process, including the naming of it and the promoting of it and, or the, the trying to find an agent or a publisher and, and all of it. Um, and just know that was so helpful to me in my, in my own seeking of a book deal and all of that. Oh, I'm so glad that was the whole process was entirely mysterious to me. So I thought it might be helpful for other people to see, you know, you just don't know, you think, oh, I mean, and I've been an, an author for a long time, but how do books get published and how oh, do you do it without an agent and totally. without, you know, being connected in the bookie world? And so it's very, and how do you do it when your stuff is strange? Yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> right. right. I can't tell you how many people I would talk to about my stuff and they'd be like, what? Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Yeah. All right. We're not the right match. Yeah. So I wanted to just start this conversation about runes <sighs> because some folks listening might know what they are, might have them in their home, might practice with them. Some folks might be like, oh, what now? <laughs> and I have learned so much from you about runes in a way that feels, um, yeah, there's sort of a one dimensionality to runes in this like spiritual earth-based practice, ancestral ways world where they just sort of felt like Oracle cards. Like Mm -hmm. there are these images and they have meanings. Mm -hmm. And when I would look at the meanings, like it just fell flat. And then when I, worked with you and learned from you. You've actually done like rune drawings for me in a a personal way. I've seen, okay, actually, this is a very ancient and deep thing that goes back so far in history of our ancestors. And 
And I'd love for you to share more from that space, whatever feels true in this moment of what are the runes and where did they come from? Mm, that's such a good question. I have goosebumps just talking the, the deep origin of the runes. So intellectually, academically, the runes are mysterious. They, you know, from an academic archaeological perspective, there's a lot of theories about where they come from, but confirming those theories is notoriously difficult. In the myths, the runes are always attributed to Odin in the Northern European mythology. He sacrifices himself for nine days and nine nights on the world tree to acquire this knowledge. But one of the things that when I first started working with the runes, because I, like you, came to them, I saw them as symbol at first, which they are, but they're so much more. And I've come to see them. I'm an animist, so I see everything as living. I've come to see them as living beings. And they are pieces of the web of weird. Weird being W-Y-R-D, meaning origin meaning the, the living fabric of the universe, everything is connected in the weird. And the source, I realized, of the runes was not actually Odin himself, though his sacrifice was really important. And it's a story of partnership, this acquisition of really esoteric, um, vital knowledge. But the source is a well, and it's the well of earth, which is actually the name of a Norn. The Norns are a triple goddess or triple giantess figures, these ancient, ancient beings that guard this well. So Earth is one of their names, and that word means origin. It's also the root of the word weird. And Earth, the well of Earth, the well of origin, contains all that ever was all that is and all that will be. So it contains the weird. It contains everything. Earth has two companions, Verdandi and Skuld, and their names mean things like Verdandi means something like happening, like a lot of people interpret that to mean the present moment. Um, and then Skuld's name means debt, which could be the debts of the future to the past. So there's this wonderful interplay of this feminine essence in the well, around the well. And Odin sacrifices himself to take up the runes from the well. And in visualizations, I actually saw that as him taking pieces of the web of weird. And the word that's used to describe this taking can mean to take, like actually, you know, to acquire. But it can also just mean to learn. And Odin's very famous in the myths of, of seeking out and learning feminine wisdom. He is very much about this partnership, this synthesis between the qualities of the masculine and the feminine. He is incomplete in himself without this kind of partnership relationship. And that is how the runes came into the world. They came into the world by a divine masculine sacrifice that then was allowed, because I don't see it as him stealing the runes from the Norns. He performed a sacrificial initiation in order to receive this knowledge from them. And the runes are then living pieces of the web of weird vibrational beings that can be 
in relationship with us in the same way that animals, plants, other symbols are in relationship with us in a living world. Mm. And the way runes look, I remember this with um, a former teacher of mine, Liz Milliarelli, is is they're symbols that they're not, there's no rounding of the symbol so that they can easily be made with like twigs or sticks. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me understand like how ancient they are. If you think about it from like an alphabetic perspective or like a language perspective, like that they could be easily carved or created in nature. And I actually have runes tattooed on my body. And I, I have shared this with you and in spaces where we've been facilitating a few times because it's just like the wildest, you know, these stories in our lives of like, why did that happen? And then later in life being like, mm-hmm. so I was 18 slinging drinks at the Starbucks in my little suburban town. And a, f- a friend, a dear friend still today was a co-barista with me. And one day she brought in this book and this book was the book of runes and she she shared it with me and i wasn't even as practiced in ritual and uh, like pagan earth folk ways at that time i was just really drawn to this book in my like abercrombie and fitch surf outfit like i was really into this book and i felt compelled to put three of the runes on my body uh, pretty quickly, like made an appointment, had them tattooed on my outer left ankle. And I took their meanings to mean at that time, uh, oh dear, I've forgotten their names. See, this is where I feel like still like they have so much to teach me because I don't have a real understanding or like ownership of what they are. Uh, But I had them mean self-protection and wholeness. Mm-hmm. And that at the time, I was recovering from pretty intense bulimia in high school. And something about those runes, it was like I cast them on me and mm-hmm. said, just like ally yourself to me on my tree trunk mm-hmm. and help me through this. And then I remember I shared it with my brother who strongly does not practice anything (laughs) remotely. And he then was so touched. He tattooed the same runes on his back Mm. um, to support him in his own healing journey in his twenties. And then I sort of forgot about them. And then I came to find out the, this middle one, which I, which I associated with protection. It's the like lightning bolt one. Mm -hmm. What, What is that one? Solo. So willow. Mm-hmm. Then I found out that that was used by Nazi Germany for the SS, for the German SS police. And then I came into this whole world of understanding the use, the co-opting of runes in white nationalist and white supremacist culture. And then I had a deep shame experience for many, many years of having these on my body. And then a reckoning this beautiful coming back into and and you provided that entry point in your very gentle invitation into runes being things to sit with animist entities energies uh, and to trust i really felt this invitation from you to trust that 
these three runes that I had given these names to like have a a whole lifetime, a whole body, a whole energy with which to be with the medicine to be with that has worked its way through myself and now my brother. Uh, and I feel in this moment like, hmm, I wonder what they have for me next <laughs> as I am in this new experience of my life, having just, you know, crossed the, thre- crossed the threshold into motherhood. So I share that from a place of, of being like, I have a relationship with the runes and I can't even put words to them <laughs> mm-hmm. and often feel very confused. Uh, but I also am realizing just how powerful they are. That's such a lovely story. I love that story so much. I hear that story, your story about being drawn to the runes. So the runes are very powerful. And especially I found for for so many people, so symbolism is such an ancient part of our human languages. And runes, you know, are often identified with Northern Europe and and you talked about their misappropriation by Nazi Germany. I want to be very clear that the runes are not white nationalist tools. They are being misappropriated and misused. There is absolutely no evidence of ancestral connection of the runes to any sort of uh, racist white nationalist agenda Mm -hmm. prior to their misappropriation by Nazi Germany. There's a wonderful um, book called The Well of Remembrance by Ralph Metzner, where he, he actually has Germanic heritage and he talks about how distanced he felt from his own heritage because of this overlay of white nationalism and the horrible things that happened in Nazi Germany and how coming into relationship with his cultural inheritance, the ancient cultural inheritance, Mm. the pre, you know, pre patriarchal even because the runes are deeper than patriarchy. They are Mm -hmm. older than the Vikings. They are much older than most of the cultures that we identify as, you know, historical European civilization. And then of course you can find parallel symbols in cultures around the world. Mm. Symbolic language is a human language, but I find for people that they recognize the runes somehow. People who are drawn to work with these beings often have been introduced to them in childhood, like I was through um, my mother had a pendant from her father's hometown in Norway that had runes on it. Mm. Um, Or you coming to them, seeing them in a book, or I've had People write to me and say, someone gave me a set of runes when I was a child. I didn't know what they were, but I've always been drawn to them. And I feel like these beings are speaking to people in a variety of ways throughout their lifetime. And, you know, in the, in the more, like you talked a little bit about the kind of the modern, we tend to look at divination tools as just that, they're tools. They're just tools there, you know, whereas in studying ancestral cultures, there is no such thing as something that is just a tool. It is a living, breathing entity. My drum is not a tool. My drum is a being. And if I want to work with that drum, I have to feed it and care for it and nourish it. And it's the same with, you know, any sort of work that we do with cards or with symbols, we have to be in relationship with them. So that initial draw is an invitation. That initial impulse of like noticing, noticing the runes, seeing them, being curious about them, that is them saying, 
Hi. <laughs> Hi, Becca. <laughs> I really want to um, hang out with you. And I love that you're talking about the relationship over time because that is another aspect of the runes is that they change. There's, you know, 33 that I work with. There's actually many more than that that have not been formally identified. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So this is, again, that, like, where did the runes come from? If they came from the ancient um, sacred script of old European civilization, which has not ever been decoded in in terms of language, but has all of the hallmarks of language, then there are, if you can look up the sacred script, you can look up the work of archaeologist Maria Gambutas, and you can see a lot of other runes. Um, mm. If you look at everything from, you know, the ancient rock art in Scandinavia, the, you know, the uh, Neolithic settlements at the nests of Bragar up in the Orkney Islands, like there are runes everywhere. And they're identified sometimes as pre-runic writing. Um, I've had dreams. I know other people have had dreams about runes that are not in the rune mm. lexicon. Mm. And that's because the only container we have for the, the alphabet of 33, which contains the 24 Elder Futhark and then the nine Anglo-Northumbrian runes, are written poems or written manuscripts. That's how we say, oh, these are the real runes. That's because we privilege written language in this culture mm. and we privilege historical information which that's all that historical means is it's written down somewhere but the runes are pre-literate and they are prehistoric mm. and that is why we can't access them without coming into some sort of longitudinal lifetime relationship with them mm. uh, yes and that is just like, please give that to me. I'm so tired of the linear and I'm so tired of the, um, you know, read the book, master it, move on. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really not, that's really not what the, the runes are and their runes are for everyone. Yes. And so this book is a beautiful way to enter into that practice and you, yeah, maybe you can share a bit about how folks can use work with this book because it's not just like a linear, you know, 10 days to rune mastery. Like what, <laughs> you know, it's it's so much deeper than that. And you have your beautiful drawings in it. And I'd, I'd love for you to share more about how people can work with it. Sure. So I, my, my intention is always to share my own processes because, and not as a prescription for other people, but because this path for me has been so long and so full of, you know, a lot of pitfalls. I mean, you know, this being someone who has studied earth-based spirituality, you walk many paths that are either empty or appropriative or, um, you're misled by folks. I mean, it, it, the journey to spiritual sovereignty is a really difficult one, especially in a culture with so much religious supremacy. So my intention is to give folks the tools that have been useful to me on my path only so they can make their own path. Because I believe, and this is from studying 
all of my ancestral traditions that I can possibly get my hands on <laughs> as far back as they will go. I'm just consistently doing research and our ancestors prior to historical religions all had direct access to spiritual information. Everyone was a participant. Mm. Yes, there were a few spiritual leaders, but they were specialists and you only went to them if you were like in major crisis and couldn't fix it yourself. Mm. We all had the skills at that time. All of our ancestors had the skills to do basic healing, basic magical work, basic divination. Like we would do that work for our families and our communities. We would come together in celebration and we would go home and live our lives in relationship with the animate world around us. That is available to every single human being on this planet. That is something that we have been severed from by religious supremacy and by religious hierarchy. Hmm. And so this book is not like, oh, you have to do everything that I do and then you will, yes, 10 days to rune mastery. <laughs> doesn't work that way. That's not what no. I found. No. It's more, here's what I've learned about them. Here are the things that I, I do to work with them. And then I have a 33-week practice of inquiry and artistic engagement that you can use if you want to start building a relationship with each of the runes. And, you know, I don't, I do share some of my own insights because this is Gnosis work. So this is you coming into your own direct spiritual relationship with these beings and with your ancestors and with other guides that you might encounter on the path. But it is helpful to compare Gnosis and community. So at the end of the book, I have some of the things that have come up for me in working with the individual runes. But I don't recommend, I put it at the end for a reason. Mm -hmm. I don't recommend people go there first. We always are looking for the authority constantly. We're like, who will tell me what I am? Who will tell me how I need to do this? Who will tell me how to, you know, be spiritual? And you already are. That is the amazing thing is that you are already so powerful, so spiritual, so capable of these connections. All you have to do is be willing to sit and ask and listen and watch the synchronicities that come up. Mm. Watch how you are led. Your millions, billions of ancestors are longing to empower you in this journey. And that is that is yours alone. That belongs to you alone. Mm. 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 I think I needed to hear that. I think I need to hear that over and over and over again. You know? I think we all do. <laughs> yeah. This idea of spiritual sovereignty and the path to it actually, I, I, I'm really grateful you named it. The path to spiritual sovereignty, sovereignty is difficult particularly because of religious supremacy, whether you have had like one-on-one -on -one experience, like grew up in a household that was really influenced by a certain like dogma or we're just influenced. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink, you know, this, this really, this severing of our own intuitive connection and from the animate world that is literally at our fingertips and under our feet and, you know, on our bodies. Yeah, it's, it's a long game. 
I think that is something that really resonates for me. And what I also share openly in my community and work is like, if when you're committing to this work, like you, you've got to be patient and willing to, you know, dive in, dive deep into the shadows and in the underworld and, and something I've really appreciated about the way you share is really from your perspective as someone who has a disability and is, and has a chronic illness, you know, and there's a lot of curiosity. I asked the folks in Hearthfire, the community I facilitate, you're quite popular in there. And uh, what questions they had for you. And, and a few folks said like how your experience with disability mediates your experiences with with this work, with earth honoring, with ancestral reconnection, with your own gnosis, you know, like, because I find when you speak to it, it resonates and reverberates in a place of deep healing for me. So I'd love to know more about that. That's such a great question. And I don't, my spiritual journey is not separate from my journey of chronic illness and disability. They're intimately intertwined. Um, and I've been doing a lot of research. I'm actually working on a proposal for my next book, <laughs> which is yeah. about initiations, rites of passage, and the difficulty of these journeys. But mm -hmm. there is so much evidence in so many cultures that illness and disability are actually part of the spiritual journey, part of the spiritual path that the, you know, and I've had to, I'm a storyteller and I believe that when we reframe stories, we can then be empowered by even the really difficult stories in our lives. And I think the myths teach us that because myths are fraught with challenge. And the way that we move through the myth cycles of our lives is by meeting those challenges and finding the gifts in them. So my um, prior to becoming extremely ill, I was gradually ill for about a decade, but didn't know what was wrong with me. And prior to becoming extremely ill, I was a university professor and a PhD student. And of course, I'm a mother of three children. At the time, my children were all in middle school. <laughs> which was challenging uh, enough. Wow. <laughs> um, and then I just, I kept, I was definitely on a spiritual path, definitely doing spiritual work, trying to, you know, do so many things, wear so many hats. And, and I became so severely ill that I couldn't get out of bed for several years for longer than, you know, a half an hour at a time. And um, eventually I became so severely ill that I thought that I was dying and spent several months um, in a dark room, essentially by myself, unable to even read or write. And having everything removed from me like that, I felt like there I was on this edge in the underworld of my own psyche where I could give in to absolute despair. Or I could call on my ancestors and I could call on these beings that I had supposedly been building relationships with this whole time in this external life that I'd been living. Mm. And I could ask them, what was being needed of me in this time? What 
is the gift of this experience. Like how can you find the gift in being so sick and in pain that you can't do anything at all? And in that, I found a new path and a new sense of purpose. And I did heal. I still live with chronic illness and disability. I was sharing before we started recording that I've been in a really reactive time for about six weeks now, and it's derailed a lot of different things in my life. But I choose to see these as spiritual derailments, even though they still are heartbreaking, because I'm not in the linear world anymore. I am not the person that I was when I started down this path. I am now entirely mythic. Mm-hmm. And when I embrace that, I feel how my ancestors must have lived also in this mythic cycle of death and rebirth, of loss and gain, of emergence and reemergence, and how when all of the externalities are stripped away, you have a choice. You have a choice to embrace who you are as you are and see every breath, every moment of your life as a gift or to fall into the measures that we give everyone in this culture constantly and always come up short. Mm. So I, that is, is my spiritual journey. It is my spiritual work. I'm doing it constantly. It will never be done because I'm always heartbroken about my losses and I am always overjoyed by what I've received on this path. Mm. I really feel that both and in, in the way you share, like I really do feel the grief and heartbreak. You're very honest about, you know, when you have flare ups and um, when things you aren't able to show up to things that you were excited about. And then I really do feel those moments of like small joys and big joys and, and deep realizations. And it's right. You fully have stepped out of the linear. I guess you can't fully step out, but you're pretty close. (laughs) But when you said I'm entirely mythic, I thought me too, me too. (laughs) What a relief. (sighs) But yes, what a a beautiful way to reframe from utter despair into entirely mythic. How did you write a book in all of that? (laughs) (laughs) So I've learned, and this is a big secret, so everyone needs to lean in because this is like, I, I don't know. I mean, I have to write and I have to make art. I just do. That was the hardest part about being so ill is I couldn't do that. But I've learned that when I teach classes, they become books. I've learned that that is one of the best ways because when I offer classes at the Wild Soul School, they always have so much information. I give way too much information for a class. Um, And then what it is, though, is it's an accumulation. So the Wild Soul Runes book began as a class that was a 33-week long Gnosis class in Rune relationship. And then I pulled from all of these other resources that I'd created for patrons, for my newsletter, for, you know, just the ongoing consistent writing that, that we do when we're communicating with people. Oh, I, I also pulled from, you know, Instagram posts. I mean, it was just like, 
and wove that together. And what I found, and this is something that I found too in working with people over so many years, this is why I always say we have to keep a record of our processes because we do so much more than we ever think. Like Mm. even look at, at your photos that you take. Look at all of those photos. Look at what you've done. And if you write one sentence a day for a year, you have a lot of words at the end of that year. You have many sentences. So, you know, books are made of time, just like quilts are made of time. And the, the beauty of that patience that you spoke about earlier is knowing that when you keep a record of your process, you're accumulating something that then you can later share with other people. So that's, it's really a book that is, it's about five years of my life. Mm-hmm. All together <laughs> in in a a small portable form. That is a good secret. <laughs> My book is similar in is that it? way. Yeah, yeah. I find my my Instagram posts are like these uh, like anchor points. And I can go back to them and like enter into like that day and because I it's visual too. So I can see that day and I can enter and then all of a sudden that was how I, I could work through in the writing of my book, which is different. It's not the same type of book, but there were points I had to really touch upon. And I was very pregnant writing this book. And I, yeah, I went to all of my former and I had these moments of feeling like I, I the well was dry And that just wasn't true Mm -hmm. because I had a record, thank you, internet, to go back to. Yeah. And I have, you know, years of courses I've taught in my community. So yeah, that's the way to do it and to not have to recreate the wheel, so to speak. I think so many of us have books, you know, in the accumulation of our experiences or our journals or, I mean, i I think that it's having faith in that work. This book made me feel really vulnerable because it's not a standard rune book. It's not a, this is what this means and this is mm-hmm. how you do it. And and because it is so much my personal process. Oh, and I translated the rune poems myself. Yeah. <laughs> Casual. <laughs> Wish. And then left them really imperfect and like not because I'm not a translator, so it's not professional, but I don't want them to be professional because I want you, dear listener, to try your own translating because one, it's super fun and you learn so much and you see how translation is just entirely arbitrary. Uh huh. And most of the translations we have of these medieval manuscripts that are such a wellspring of vital information about pre-Christian spiritual cultures. They're all translated by like 19th century Christian men and Uh they they missed some things. So. Yeah. I'm opening. Yeah. You've got Norwegian, old Icelandic Mm -hmm. and then Anglo-Saxon. Wait, how long did that take you? What? It took me a while. Yeah. I mean, this is right. This is the long game you've been in this. Yeah. Wow. It is, and it all started with one, one word. And this is what I mean by when we start on our own path of spiritual sovereignty. Yes, it isn't easy, but there is so much good work that can be done 
in in this way and and so much ground that we can reclaim as we reclaim you know so many other things from systemic oppression we mm-hmm. can start to reclaim some of this language these ancestral languages um from you know people who really most of the work that was uh translated in the 19th century that you know comes even all of the written work comes from people with an entirely Christian lens. And mm-hmm. so coming at it from uh, an earth honoring lens, seeking those threads of balance between the masculine and the feminine and this reclaiming of feminine power has been, is just rich. And, and it starts with a word you go, Hmm, I don't think that's what that means. Mm. Maybe I should look it up. Mm. Yeah, just to to lift up Maria Gambutis once again. Yes. <laughs> to yes, really thank see you. <laughs> her as a pioneer in this work to really be in the, you know, archaeological and anthropological community and question at a time when she was really just ostracized yes. for for deigning to say, mm, I don't think that means what you think it means. And and this, like, look at this, and this is not true. And to even bring Gnosis into the work, uh, I just really honor her and encourage everyone listening to get her book somehow and look into her work. There's like great stuff on YouTube too. And to see, and I, something you said the last time you were on this podcast is that we we are the myth makers in this time. Mm-hmm. And seeing the importance of our translations and of our rituals that we create. And and that is, to me, so powerful and a way to unspell religious oppression and dogma and to really bring in this sense of, like, we we are the ancestors. We are becoming the ancestors. Yes. And it wasn't like that 19th century supremacy of like the story of the history, the story of the past by like these colonizer men. (laughs) Like that's not, that doesn't have to be the forever story of us on earth. No, not at all. And there is, I mean, so Maria Gambutas, one of her longstanding critics, I just found out this information this year, um, her Kurgan theory has now been proven by DNA evidence, by the way. Mm. So this incredible theory of an old European civilization being invaded by Indo-Europeans over, you know, several thousand years and um, and this dramatic shift in culture in yeah. Europe because of that, um, which we believe there are threads in, certainly there's threads in archaeology, but there's definitely also little shimmering threads in mythology that you can find that tell this story. Um, the story of Golvig is one of them, and I detail that in the Wild Soul Runes book. But one of her long-standing critics just had to eat crow and say, she was right. She was right. This this male academic who had criticized her work all along um, in 2017, I think he finally acquiesced because of the DNA evidence. He was like, I, you know, she was right. Here we have irrefutable proof that this happened. And so, yes, we we stick our necks out when we challenge the status quo, whatever that status quo is. But 
in this, I mean, this work of, of deep spiritual sovereignty and this work of personal empowerment and this work of teaching our children to be open, just be open to mm-hmm. the possibilities in the world around them and in, you know, sharing in community the things that we learn, the things that we find, that gentle awakening of relationship allows for things to heal. And it is going to take thousands of years to get out of this giant muck hole that we've dug ourselves into as humans. But we have also undeniable, irrefutable support from every single living thing around us for doing this work. Mm -hmm. And I think that coming into that is such a gift and what a purpose. Mm-hmm. What a purpose to change a story. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ah, beautiful, beautiful words. There is some curiosity about the book cover, which <laughs> is your art. Yes. Which uh, in the publishing world is not always possible. So that's pretty cool. And we talked about in the last episode, which was actually like over, I think, a year and a half ago. So these are the Norns, right? Yes. Can you speak to this? It's my favorite of your art. And Mm. I know I I see it just move around the internet. It's very very compelling and inspiring. So maybe you want to speak to it. Sure. So yes, the cover is... The Norns, I'm so excited that they were willing to put my art on the book and in the book. It really feels great. The union of image and word is one of the ways that we heal the disconnect between the masculine and feminine in us. I think that we, again, and I'm speaking only as qualities, not speaking about gender. These are things that live in all of us. But it's the Norns sitting at the well, and you can see the runes in the well. And the world tree is behind them and you can see the runes spinning in the universe behind them. And they are sharing a thread. And there is evidence that the Norns worked with thread. There's, you know, some people call them spinners and weavers. There's not a lot of direct textual evidence for that. I feel them that way because spinning and weaving is such um, an important part of uh, the storied history from Europe, but in many other parts of the world as well. But there is evidence that they worked with thread, that they plied the thread of existence between them. So that's what that illustration is. Mm. I never noticed their faces are runic. Yes. Wow. How long does it take you to make a piece of art like this? Draw this. A long time. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a long time. Yeah. It's, um, for that, for the detail, the really detailed line art, it can take me a couple of months. Wow. So, um, because it, uh, I have physical limitations, so it can be painful to draw for long periods of time. It's all done with pen and ink, just black on white. And then I scan it and I overlay the art onto a cosmic event, like a a NASA Commons photo. Mm. So these Norns are over a, a photo of a birth of a star. Uh, wow. <laughs> beautiful. So beautiful. 
Okay, everyone, let's go get this book. It's called <laughs> Wild Soul Runes Reawakening the Ancestral Feminine by Lara Valeda Vesta. Available everywhere, yeah? yeah and all the places everywhere. to get all the books. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, I think it it's for those of us uh, who have altars, we can place it upon the altar and have, you know, a growing library of of spiritual texts, this is one to add to it. So highly, highly recommend it and encourage you to go get it. Laura, thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, it is my pleasure always. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.